بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم ما بعد We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. We are now on page 52 of Formations of the Secular by Talal Asad. Right, who's reading? Myth, poetry, and secular sensibility. Poets from Blake and Coleridge on or Coleridge on geniuses in the Romantic tradition experimented with the mythic method in their own religious poetry. Myth was regarded in much early Romantic thought as the original way of apprehending spiritual truth. If biblical prophets and apostles, as well as shamans in the primitive world, were not to be seen as performing in mythic mode a poetic function, then modern geniuses could reach into themselves and express spiritual truths by employing the same method. Okay, so this is an interesting point. That all right. So we talked about the Romantic tradition, right? This is this is sort of like a blowback against the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is trying to be rigorous about empirical uh, analysis of the world, and this is contributing to what eventually becomes scientism. Uh, but then after that, there's the Romantic period, which is pushing back, saying you guys are too focused on the mind and rules and stuff. But there's something in the essence of the human experience that you're missing out on, and that's where you talk about things like love and all that stuff. And so they are trying to reframe how we look at geniuses, or genius itself. And the analogy they're doing is that, all right, if the shaman is someone who is connecting to some higher truth, some spiritual uh, world beyond, then maybe that's what the genius is, or the prodigy is, of our era, right? Because we do have an appreciation for prodigies, right? I mean, we speak of prodigies in terms of chess, in terms of music. Do we do anything else? Math, science. Yeah, we probably do like people who we call prodigies. And I remember Ebert once suggested that we're probably going to do the same thing with like computer programming or something. But the idea being someone who somehow has tapped into something beyond, that is beyond the reach of any of, of us. And then they're bringing something down to our world. So Mozart is, is, has this amazing connection <clears throat> in this world of music that he then brings to all these beautiful things for us. Right. Um, you're about to say something. Could, could we say, um, going off of what Roger Ebert told you, I mean, don't we already do that with, like, the Matrix and stuff? Where So, in fiction we do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's very much Neo. Yeah. And um, I don't know if we do that yet in terms of contemporary, just like, you know, culture with real people. I mean, we do sort of with the... Um, what about, like, the Nasser guy? Or, like, the Facebook guy, you know, the, that movie is pretty I mean, much, like, you know, he just, he came up with this thing that changed the world. Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely uh, were framing like these modern IT superstars as sort of like the oil titans of 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we're also doing the same thing. Yeah. For this, the virtue of faith was not necessary. All that was required was that one be sincere in one's intention, that one represent the deepest feelings truthfully in outer discourse. This made to help this may help to explain the prevalence among Victorian unbelievers of what Stefan Collini calls a rhetoric of sincerity. For not only was the idea of being true to oneself conceived of as a moral duty, it also presupposed the existence of a secular self whose sovereignty had to be demonstrated through acts of sincerity. The self-secularity consisted in the fact that it was the, precon- it was the precondition of transcendent, Poetic or religious experience and not its product. Okay, so this is also an interesting point. 
this rise of this notion of being true to yourself, finding yourself, right? I mean, this is even when we get into the conversation of gender, you know, what is your real gender as opposed to your physiological gender? And what is your orientation as opposed to what society has, in theory, constructed for you? And so very much uh, as part of this growth of the secular outlook has been this growth of the search for the self as a type of sincerity, right? Finding out who whom you really are. And that also goes hand in hand with this. So on the one hand, you have the genius or the prodigy who is tapping into some world beyond. And then for you, it's learning how to be true to yourself. A lot of people that get admired in our society, even if they are people of rebellion, um, they get admired for seeming to be able to be true to themselves. While all the rest of us get restricted by all these structures like religion. So when someone's saying, I'm spiritual, not religious, at one level they're saying, I'm not going to follow the rules. But at another level, it's kind of like saying, I'm trying to be true to myself as opposed to someone else telling me what to be. And that's very much part of the secular era. Poets like Browning, who struggled to retain their religious convictions in an increasingly skeptical age, saw in mythic patterns a way to harmonize the findings of psychology and history. That's to say, to harmonize, the intern to harmonize internal reality with external. Robert Langbaum observed that it was Browning who first outlined what has come to be the dominant 20th century theory about poetry. That it makes its effect through the association in the reader's mind, reader's mind of disparate elements, and that this process of association leads to the recognition in what has been presented successively of static pattern. The recognition in the 20th century is often called epiphany, the sudden showing forth of the spiritual in the actual. Okay, so then when you put it all together, it's that last sentence. The spiritual happens in your actual. That when you can be true to yourself, then you are embodying reality. You're being embodying higher truth. And that moment is, in this language, epiphany. Right? Epiphany is different in Christianity. But the idea here is part of the secular outlook. A rebellion against these structures is the search for the authentic human self. What is it in Christianity? Uh, I forgot, actually. It's something related to something right after Christmas. Mm -hmm. yeah. The mythic method continued to be important even among 20th century writers who disclaimed any religious faith, such as James Joyce, T.S. Eliot. In his laudatory review of Ulysses, writes that in using the myth, in manipulating a continuous parallel between the contemporary... The, between the contemporane, contemporaneity? And... Yeah. and antiquity, Mr. Joyce is pursuing a method which others must pursue after him. The mythic method is simply a way of controlling, of ordering, of giving a shape and a significance to the immense panorama of futility and anarchy which is contemporary history. It is a method already adumbrated by Mr. Yeats, psychology, ethnology, and the Golden Bow have concurred to make possible what was impossible even a few years ago. Instead of narrative method, we may now use the mythical method. It is, I seriously believe, a step toward making the modern world possible for art toward order and form. And so this is still continuing the same basic point, right? That <clears throat> the search to be able to find your true being... Um, becomes the subject of myth. 
As opposed to in story, you have a person who's an ongoing quest. You make the myth be your true self. Okay, let's continue. T.S. Eliot famously used what he called the mythical method in his own poetry. However, this use of myth is not to be confused with Starobinsky's reference to the mythicization of modern history that I cited earlier. There is no yearning for a lost plentitude in this literature. Here, myth is invoked explicitly as a fictional grounding for secular values that are sensed to be ultimately without foundation. It, is there, it therefore marks a very different sensibility from the one found in the use of myth by Coleridge and other romantics. Ironically, the fictional character of myth that led Enlightenment writers like Diderot to place myth together with tradition is precisely what leads early 20th century writers to link myth fabrication to modernity. Yeah, the part in the parentheticals, I don't know if I understand that. But this is still interesting, the idea of taking tradition and myth and making it one. That I think we do a lot, right? Um, that which we define as tradition is often actually our mythology, as opposed to the history of our discourse. Right. And that's why, like, people would be surprised if you would say, like, oh, such and, like, such and, such, and such opinion, you can find it within their tradition. Mm -hmm. That might, like, throw people off. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. it's not part of our mythology, but it might be part of our tradition. Exactly, okay. yeah. Okay, let's continue. The importance of myth as a literary technique <coughs> for imposing aesthetic unity on the disjointed and ephemeral character of individual experience the poet encounters in modern life has been frequently noted. By a curious inversion, the new Arab poets, strongly influenced by modernist Euro European poetry, have resorted to ancient Middle Eastern mythology in order to signify the authentically modern, indicating in this way their desire for escape from what they regard as the stifling traditions in the contemporary Islamic world. The most prominent among these poets is Adonis, the Phoenician pseudonym of the most eminent member of the Shir group a self-declared atheist and modernist. Using devices familiar to Western symbolist and surrealist poetry, Adonis alludes to mythic figures in a self-conscious effort to disrupt Islamic aesthetic and moral sensibilities, to attack what is taken to be sacred tradition in favor of the new, that is, of the Western. These myths, incidentally, have had to be translated into Arabic from the writings of modern European scholars who transcribed and re-narrated them. But in this respect, Adonis's technique is figural rather than structural. It aims primarily to dislocate settled feelings, not to impose a set of sense of order and form where these are lacking. This use of myth in modern Arabic poetry is part of a response to the perceived failure of Muslim societies to secularize, and it is infused with the consciousness of the West as an object of emulation. Okay, so now part of the process of developing new myth is this process of making the West the object of the myth, which then requires you to take down other myths. Now, an interesting point, which I don't think this book gets into, is when you make your myth synonymous with your conception of God, right? The idea being that, all right, what is the pinnacle of your myth? Because then it'll become a battle of your God versus the other God. Right? And I'm saying that your myth is almost like, you know, the, the, the effects of your, of your deity. Yeah. Is, is that why, like, you think people fall into that teen, like, you, we were talking earlier about seeing Islam as a team? I mean, I don't know if, if like, in terms of chicken or egg, egg um, if the myth uh, compels people to have the team, 
mm-hmm. or if the team forms the myth, but they do, I think, definitely go hand in hand. Yeah. All right, let's continue. For Adonis, myth arises whenever human reason encounters perplexing questions about existence and attempts to answer them in what can only be a non-rational way. Thus proceeding a combination of poetry, history, and wonderment. The freedom to think in this way, to recognize publicly that myth is a necessary product of the secular mind, Adonis regards as integral to modernity. Hence, in his poetry, existential questions and historical ones are addressed in mythic terms. More specifically, his desire for salvation of the Arab people, held for a millennium in the grip of a sacred language, is acted out through myths of alienation, of resurrection, and of redemption. And yet, in classical Islamic discourse, the Arabic language of the Quran is never called a sacred language, as it is in modern secular discourse. For the latter idea presupposes an abstraction called language that it can then combine with a contingent quality called sacredness. Okay, so a few uh, huge points in that last sentence, or last two sentences. Number one, uh, it is fascinating that in the modern con- uh, conversation, we regard Arabic as sec- uh, sacred. But you don't find this historically. Okay. That's issue number one. Issue number two... Uh, part of the modern era is that you segment every different part of life as though they can be independent. Okay? And so this might take a moment to explain that the idea of language being something you can separate from the rest of the world is also a modern idea. Okay? Don't confuse this with grammar or the fact that you can have words on a page. The idea being that historically you cannot separate language from a person. In the same way, you can't separate breathing from a person. In the same way, you can't separate emotion from a person. Uh, It is a modern idea to think of, okay, this is this thing called Arabic. That is a thing called English. But where is this thing located? are we talking about like this? This especially with like a lot of modern philosophers who talk about language like that. Is that we're talking about like the I study mean, I, of it in that? I way? think uh, it leads into that, right? Mm. Uh, so, if we're talking about the study of it as linguistics, then we're basically looking at the properties of language. This thing that we call language, which would be like the properties of of communication, right? And then you can get into things like philology, which is all like the grammatical rules and everything, right? But if we're talking about what is language... Yeah, like, I'm thinking, when, when, you, when you said this, I'm thinking of, like, uh, what's that guy's name, Wittgenstein or whatever, where he talks about, like, 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 its effectiveness as far as communicating, like, what's in the natural world and how, like, it's broken or whatever. Like, he can't effectively... You know, like, man, I forget what it... I read that a long time ago. But basically, he's just he's getting into, like, the nature of language and, you know, talking about it sort of separate from, like, you know, just like, you know, like you said, where you just, like, it's part of human beings. It's mm-hmm. part of their culture. It's how they use it, whatever. Mm-hmm. But he's, it's, I, I don't know. I just yeah. feel like a lot of philosophical, like, whenever I read about when they talk about it, it just seems, like you said, it just seems sort of, you're, you're taking apart, mm-hmm. taking it away from the actual human experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, yeah, I mean, I can't comment on the Wittgenstein part, but um, the idea being that um, in the same way you can't really separate religion and culture, which we do today. We say that's culture, not religion, right? You really can't separate them. Um, to separate them it means you're actually being dishonest with yourself in terms of what religion is. Because, like, where is your religious practice uh, outside of your prayers? 
and how do you pray? So you might be used to just praying on the floor and a floor like this. Someone else might need a Janamas, right? That immediately becomes culture, right? And the way we frame it. But the key point here is that it's in the modern sense where you can separate all of these components, okay? That you can separate language as its own thing. Whereas in reality, no. I mean, language is part of your tongue, right? I mean, that's literally what, one of the words for language in Arabic, lisan, that's tongue, right? And so, so the point being that um, um, it's a modern concept to then look at language as something separate from people, and then that naturally leads to taking language and calling it sacred. Why, did, why then, I have two questions, one for the first thing, why, I, don't, I think we went over this, but why do we separate things like that in modernity? I mean, I think part of it is just like the, the modern approach to, to learning is to look at how everything works. And mm -hmm. so, so you're dismantling everything. It's like you're dissecting all of existence. Okay. Second, <coughs> as far as the sacredness of it, and especially with regards to our tradition, um, why do then, I know, for example, I, I've like read stories of certain scholars, you know, I think I remember reading about, um, I get this often when I'm reading about like um, the Yemeni sheikhs, the, the Habib, like you often they, like I think I was reading about Sheikh Hamza's teacher, the one in like Uganda or Africa somewhere. Martini. Murab Hajj. No, 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 the, uh, what's his name? Something Alatas, I think. He's, 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 he's. He... There's Naqib Alatas in Malaysia. No, man, I forget it. That's not him. But basically, he was he he's from Yemen originally, but he 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 moved to like Uganda or somewhere in East Africa to do dawah. And I remember reading that Hamza Yusuf actually Hamza Yusuf mentions this. He and I think Sheikh Omar has, they both studied under him at certain like a first small small time. But anyway, one of the things I just to give you a specific example, he talked about how he like they often mention this when I'm reading about them where they wherever they are. Like, they, they know, like, the local language, but everything they, like, sort of do as far as, like, you know, when it comes to any sort of religious discourse is, is done in Arabic. Wouldn't you say that's sort of sacralizing it in that sense? I don't, I don't understand the point, right? Like, you know how, like, you, where you said we didn't talk, like, Islamically, this was never, it's, Arabic was never seen as, like, a sacred language, right? So, sort of kind of follow, like, let's say you're, you know, you're somewhere given da'wah or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, like, let's say you're giving a khutbah or something, it, wouldn't you give it in that local language as opposed to giving it in, like, you know, Arabic or whatever? Or, and then having someone translate it? Okay, so then your point is what? I'm still, I'm still lost. My, I think I'm just saying, like, I just feel like the, the, they, there's a certain, I remember reading it the way it was said, is they, there was a certain value placed on Arabic. Mm -hmm. Over the sort of local language. Mm -hmm. And my point is, isn't that value sort of uh, okay, so if, if uh, a value is being given to the language because it is the language of the Qur'an, yeah. then it is kind of sacralizing it, yeah. right? Uh, as opposed to language for the purpose of communication. And so Latin is very similar, yeah. right? That, you know, services for, for almost the entire history of Catholicism until about 30 years ago were in Latin, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And, and part, even though... 99% of the Catholic world wouldn't understand what's being said. Mm -hmm. But the sentiment was that just as there's something special 
about eating the wafer as the body of Christ, drinking the wine as the blood of Christ, listening to Latin, there was something, some special quality to it that is beyond explanation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, which then gets responded to by saying that, okay, yeah, that's well and good, but if nobody can understand what's being said, then you can say anything, right? And in that way, yeah, you can say potentially, right? That, um, that there is something above that Arabic has, uh, above other languages, right? Then it seems like it's a process of sacralizing it, um, leading to eventually considering it sacred, and then the point would be then, okay, then can you have bad words? Right. I'm just, like, the, the reason I'm sort of even thinking about this is because, you know, and then we also have the Daisy in, in our debate with the Arabic khutbahs, whereas, you know, the sort mm-hmm. of the more uh, traditional side says this is the reason why we wanted Arabic. And my, my sort of, the reason I'm thinking about this is, you know, it's interesting to note him saying that in our tradition, this wasn't spoken of that way, but... Uh, sort of now you see sort of people who are the more sort of traditionalist side in that way are the ones who, you know, would 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 kind of give it that value, you know. I don't know. Maybe that's just a... a yeah, I'm lost on that last point, too. Like, I'm just, like... So he's saying traditionally, like, it, we didn't do this. Our scholars didn't do this. It wasn't part of our discourse. And... But now it seems like the people who are traditionalists, right, the ones that sort of, like, harken back to the tradition and say, hey, we need to do it they're giving it this value that maybe the tradition didn't give So that's an interesting thing. Uh, um, so Hamza Yusuf is a scholar, uh-huh. uh, but for the community, more than being a scholar, he's a performer, he, right? Okay. And so I'd say the people who are in performance as our traditional people, yes, they do that, right? Uh, I don't know if we can say the same thing about the actual scholars who are uh, sitting and doing scholarship. Okay, so, okay, right? okay, I, I'm okay. Uh, okay. And Hamza Yusuf, yeah, he runs a, a college and everything, mm-hmm. uh, but 90% of the popularity of the college doesn't have anything to do with the curriculum. Uh, it's him. Okay. Right? Okay. That, I, yeah. okay. I get that by, okay. Now, it, it makes sense when you said to sort of separate the academic scholarship yeah. part of it. Okay. So when I think of, like, the people who are sitting in Dar al-Qasim, Mm-hmm. and addressing questions and doing research and stuff, and nobody's paying attention to them, but they're doing scholarship. That's yeah. what I think of when I think of scholars. Ah, okay, yeah. okay. Hamza Yusuf, um, unfortunately, I mean, he may not like it, but uh, I think for the community, he is basically a performer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so we said one is his secularizing the study of Quran, and as a performer. <laughs> Just getting worse and worse. <laughs> yeah. It's all going downhill. Yeah. Um... Typically, Adonis uses the term myth both to celebrate human creativity, ibadah, and to... Ma- Ibdah. Ibdah. Oh, there's my Islamic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> typically, Adonis uses the term myth to both celebrate human creativity, ibdah, and to unmask the authority of divine texts. His concern is with reason and with restoring to humanity its essential sacredness, qadasa. So the same word, the qadus. Echoing a earlier European Feuerbachian discourse, Adonis declares here the logic of atheism. Ilhad means the restoration of humanity to its true nature, to faith in it by the virtue of its being human. The sacred al-Muqaddas for atheism is the human being himself, 
the human being of reason, and there is nothing greater than this human being. It replaces revelation by reason, God by humanity. But an atheism that deifies man is ironically close to the doctrine of incarnation. The idea that there is a single clear logic of atheism is itself the product of a modern binary belief or unbelief in a super being. Okay. <clears throat> so this is also an interesting point. So then so this poet is saying that the the divine for the atheist is the human being. The sacred for the atheist is the human being. And then and then Asad says that is effectively deifying man, which is very similar to the doctrine of incarnation, like we have in so many religions. And it winds up being the same thing. Yeah. I, was, I was saying, I was joking around, I was like, that's what we call academic shade right there. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. It's a good way to put it. All right, next paragraph. Although the fundamentalist, a Sulli form of Islamic thought that prevails today is itself mythic, he argues, it is a form of myth that has acquired for believers the character of law, of commandment, and so is not apparent to them as myth. For Adonis, myth is plural, even anarchic. While the religious law is monotheistic and totalitarian, in marking the unconscious truth of contemporary religious discourse, myth clearly has a very different function from the one modernist European poets gave it when they use it to ground secular experience. So this is also something fascinating. So when we speak of fundamentalist form of Islamic thought, which means very literalist, that's mythic. Meaning they see themselves as getting rid of myth, getting rid of all of the fluff. But anytime you talk to any of them, they are at least as myth-oriented as everyone else, and usually much more. Mm -hmm. And that's the fascinating balance, that they become more and more literalist in their scripture, scriptural interpretation, and consequently become more and more mythic. And then if you understand that, you understand every single issue of The Beak, which is ISIS's magazine. It's all mythology, you know, about being a shaheed and all that stuff. Yeah. It just seems, yeah, that whenever, I feel like whenever at any Muslim group you see a narrative forming, then it just, yeah. It's, it's mythology. It's, yeah. yeah. All right. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's stop right here. Democratic liberalism and myth. That was a small, but really. That was a small like, section, yeah. Like oh, yeah. heavy section, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilaik wa akhir da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin. I was just really